Hello and welcome to the Road Pod MedTech Monday. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, whenever you are listening. I'm Tom Chiginski, the host of the Road Pod, and I'm here with my co-host for MedTech Monday, Danielle Sturm. Hello. So, Danielle, what's on for today? Yeah, so today we have a member of Nemec's Smart Team um, joining us as a guest on the podcast. And for any new listeners, Nemec's Smart Team is the Subject Matter Advisory Resource Team, um, which is just our acronym for our advisor team. Um, so all these people on the Smart Team are advisors that any entrepreneur, fellow, anyone that really comes to Nemec gets to interact with, um, get advice from, and work with um, on any part of their business. So I have a... Um, announcement that we have added two new additions to our smart team. Both of them um, are coming from Johnson & Johnson. Um, they recently both left Johnson & Johnson in the marketing space. Um, the first one is Brian Morley, who is a marketing manager um, in the Depew Synthes Spine um, area. And then the other addition is David Mock, who is our guest today, and you will be meeting later in the episode, um, who is a global pricing strategist um, who also teaches global pricing strategy at um, University of California, Berkeley. Um, before we meet David, I have some more announcements just about some NIMIC fellows and past guests on our podcast. Shoot. The first is um, we're really excited to announce that um, two guests on our podcast, two NIMIC fellows, Abigail Kohler and Gregory Fine, won the Rhode Island Business Competition's MedTech track last week. So we're very excited about that. Um, unfortunately, they didn't win the grand, grand prize, but they still won the MedTech track in $10,000 um, that was sponsored by Rhode Island Commerce, as well as 20 mentoring hours from Nemec, which we're already working them a lot. So we're really looking forward to continue working with them. Exciting. That was a great podcast. Yes, it was. And I'm, it's another update on them too. So with coronavirus, and this is just another, it's really exciting with how companies and startups are kind of shifting due to COVID-19 is obviously we learned that they have an assistant CPR device, but now they've added on a whole other training session to that. So instead of kind of just selling that their device, they're putting it together in a package of CPR training for YMCAs, nurses, EMTs, because right now people can't get CPR training in person. And people need CPR training to do their jobs. So they're kind of filling that. How do I do CPR at home? How do I get feedback that I'm doing it right at home? Use And they can use their technology to give that. So we're really excited to see them move forward in that space. And that was one of the statistics that came out of that podcast that, I, that just shocked mm -hmm. me. Like 65% of all medical professionals were doing CPR yep. wrong. Exactly. Or they get tired or they don't know they're doing it wrong. So it's really right. interesting. And I mean, I'm just thinking about doing home training for CPR. You take their their app on your smartphone, you can hold it on a mattress, you press down, and it will tell you if you're pressing down far enough. And that's how you kind of do it on a person, which is crazy. Hmm. Okay. Um, and then another update is, oh, actually, before I move on, I also want to thank Jenna Marshall and Dom Mazzarelli, who are also um, on our smart team, but they helped us judge um, the competition on the med tech side. So I just want to thank them for um, volunteering their time to help judge the competition. Well, you know, they were on another podcast, mm -hmm. which spoke to how to use how to use consultants. Mm -hmm. And, and which I thought was very beneficial. And I think the real benefit of the smart team and these podcasts is 
there's real expertise going out to the marketplace mm -hmm. here. And, you know, I don't, first of all, you'd have to find the people. Second of all, you'd have to engage them. Third of all, you'd have to get, you know, pay mm -hmm. them. And now we're providing this value directly to them. And I think there's a there's a real value to that Nemec Smart team. These I've learned so much, particularly as a as a non-medtech person since I've been involved. Mm -hmm. um, every episode to me, uh, I always bring away one or two statistics or one or two points that I tell either my wife or one of my friends, and it's like, wow. You know, you just don't realize, go back to the 65% of people exactly. that didn't understand how to perform CPR correctly. Exactly. Little things like that. And, of course, coming up with David Mock, I mean, I just got something out of pricing here. I'm about to launch a new product or service. Not medtech-based, but, um, you know, pricing models. It's something you very difficult to find. You can read all the blogs you want, but listening to a subject matter expert like this provides real value that people can't find any other exactly. place. Exactly. And it's 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 not a small world, but the med tech world is it's heavily connected. And that's where like coming back to talking about how Jenna and Dom work together as a startup and a consultant is that another thing is I just found out yesterday that a woman we had on our we had a women's health and entrepreneurship series that we put on last year. Um, we didn't continue it into this year, but we had women entrepreneurs um, in healthcare or entrepreneurs working in women's healthcare come and just talk about about what they're working on. Um, we had a woman who was locally, um, her name was Ann Schmoltz, and she spoke at our event. Dom was in the audience. She has a background in spine and spinal implants, and he actually hired her on as a consultant very recently. So now she's kind of bringing her, he's raising money currently. Um, she came on mm -hmm. the team to kind of grow the business. Um, once they get the money, they're ready to go um, and get to market. So exciting. very exciting. Um, and that kind of leads into my last announcement is Dom Mazzarelli um, is currently raising funds for his company, Lenos Medical. And I'm, I'm excited. I want to have him on the podcast again to really talk more deeper into what he's doing. Um, hopefully mm -hmm. after he raises funds, kind of talk about he's raised that seed funding. Like, what is he doing now? So we're really excited for that because that should be soon. Um, but him, who was a past guest, Brad Artery, who we had on recently of my mock. Yep. Um, and we have another Nemec fellow. Um, their company is called SafeTap. It was started by two clinicians out of the hospital, and we've actually partnered with them since this idea of their device. It's a baby positioning device for spinal taps. Um, so we've partnered with them since the very beginning, since it was an idea. Um, we are on prototype two now. But those three companies got invited to our first ever Nemec curveball event, um, which is a pitch event. And it's a play on words off of over the past year, we've been putting on Nemec softball events. And what is that? What that is, is a soft pitch event where we bring in real investors, companies, about three to five companies who are not ready to fundraise, but are close to fundraising to be able to pitch to real investors, a soft pitch and get soft feedback back to prepare them for fundraising. We're really excited to put on our first curveball event because these three companies, um, Brad, Doms, and SafeTap, are currently raising funding. So this is curveball. This is now we're throwing a curveball. They're actually going to fundraise. We have a group of investors. This is We're also doing this for the first time virtually um, on the 27th. So we're really excited to see kind of what those connections are made and if any of the investors are interested in any of these companies because um, for the first time we have three companies that are ready to fundraise at the same time. And the hardball event could be when they get a term sheet and they do get Exactly. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
Well, anyway, let's get started with David Mock, the subject matter expert on pricing, who is a part of the um, Nemec Smart Team. Welcome to MedDeck Monday. We're here with David Mock, a pricing specialist and one of the members, as we were discussing prior to this, on Nemec Smart Team. And of course, Danielle Sturm, my co-host, who's always here. David, I've always thought that pricing was more of a black art than a science. And I think today, oftentimes people put their, wet their finger and sort of see what will work. I know that's not how you do it, but can you give us a little bit of your background and how you came to be a pricing specialist? Yeah. Hey, Tom, uh, glad to. Um, The funny thing is I actually stumbled upon pricing. Very early in my career, I was working at the semiconductor company started off as a product manager. And one day, our senior director uh, in business operations decided to centralize the pricing function. Mm -hmm. And he asked me if I want to join his organization. I said, no, I'm actually pretty happy what I'm doing as a product manager, right? This is exciting. I'm launching new products. I'm talking to customers and a lot of all the fun things that go with product management. And next thing I know, I'm over in his organization. So that's how my career in pricing actually started. Uh, so. And how long ago was that? Oh, gosh, that was uh, probably 18, 19 years ago. 18, 19 years. And obviously, the methodology and the tool sets for pricing modeling and historical you know, backtracing and everything have changed dramatically in that time frame. Yeah, the technology certainly has changed over time in terms of what's available. But I would, uh, but I would say the foundation and the basics have largely remained the same. Mm-hmm. And there are some, and there are some other marketing framework that has evolved uh, as well. So we try to, you know, uh, modify the pricing approach with those new uh, methods in terms of how marketing um, and product management works. Mm-hmm. Um- and I mentioned a black art before because in my past lives, I've been involved with the MIT Enterprise Forum and with a number of startups up there. And it always, even with specialists at the time at the Enterprise Forum, pricing was oftentimes, who knows what the market will bear. Why do some people today get pricing wrong? And give us a little bit of background in sort of how you've come to, obviously, you've been refining the tool sets and your methodology as time goes on. Why do people still have pr- trouble with pricing and how can they better improve that? That's a great question, Tom. And I'm going to approach answering that question from the vantage point of a product manager or entrepreneur. Okay. All right. If I ask somebody, how much should I price a certain product or service? What do you, eventually all of marketing dovetail into that instance in time when you ask yourself, how much should I price uh, my product or service? When marketers struggle to answer a question, what immediately comes to mind is that many of the elements of marketing haven't been completely vetted out or completely thought through. So for example, if I can, if I can confidently say, hey, this widget, I'm going to charge $100 because I am going after this individual and this individual values my product at this amount of money, and this product is in this part of the life cycle, and I, and, so, and on and on and on. That's what I think a lot of product managers and marketers struggles, struggle with, is they haven't thought through a lot of those elements of, um, 
uh, of the marketing mix to uh, to land on the proper price. And is that because they haven't thought through, say, I know in the med tech space, there's always an issue of who's going to pay for it in the end and what they will pay. And obviously there's the institutions who buy machine, who buy devices. And then there are uh, services that healthcare providers pay for, healthcare payment providers pay for. Um, is that go into the, the calculus when you're thinking about pricing something? It does. Um, and this is going to get a little complex. <clears throat> the way I like to, so, so first of all, once you recognize that eventually all marketing dovetails into the point where when you ask the question, how much should I price my product or service? Really, the, the next thing to think about is, um, you know, where do I begin to uh, think about pricing? And I would offer to your audience uh, a, a, couple of, a couple of advice. The first key question to ask yourself is really around, what's my product worth and to whom? It sounds like a simple question. What's my product worth and to whom? But that is a very encompassing uh, question to try to answer. And un unless you answer that correctly, everything else kind of don't matter or, or falls apart if you don't do that one right. So it's a very important and powerful question. And once you figure that one out, then the next question that you need an answer to is, well, what do you want to do? Right? So that gets into the strategy piece. And once you once you nail down those two pieces, <clears throat> that's when you could say, okay, in in order for in order for pricing to support those two elements, this is where this is how best to set the price. And then from there, you can set rules and policies. <clears throat> now, the complications that that arise are is what actually happens at the buying center. <clears throat> All right. So oftentimes, when you're uh, in in the in the in the med device space, which is what I'm familiar most familiar with, <clears throat> you're not, you're now that's not necessarily talking to the actual um, when you're talking to the user. The user may not be the per one to actually be purchasing it, so you have some of those buying center dynamics, and those and that is where it gets a little bit complicated <clears throat> in terms of the how how you how you want to navigate around that scenario. But to keep it relatively simple. What I want to maybe advice I want to offer to the audience is uh, just recognize in a B two B buying center dynamics very different than if you go to if you go to a store and buy something. Uh, what you got you, what you have to figure out is you know who's who's playing what role within the hospital, and by understanding who's playing what role in the hospital, uh, then you have to understand you know uh, once uh, once you have once you have mapped out who plays what role. Then you start understanding what value does your product create for those for those individuals in the different roles, and are there any obstacles along the way? Uh, so I pause here. is a is a it could be a very deep and entrenched topic, right? But that would be my advice to uh, to the audience. And, and that's a, a topic you teach at out at Berkeley, right? Correct. It it uh, I do. Yeah, I actually teach a um, a as part of a product management program a half day course on pricing within the within the product management program. Right. Now, you also mentioned at one point in our previous conversation where pricing thinking comes in into the design thinking methodology. Oftentimes, people will design something and have no idea how they're going to price it. And um, where does that come in? Because we all know we can make something at a, to meet a, a certain price point that we have to go back in back into it and develop their product from there. 
Or do we develop the product at the beginning to say this is going to be the best product out there and then charge whatever we can for it? Because we all know there's overcharging in our med tech space. I mean, there's it's a almost 20% of our GDP. You know, it's a very, it's a very high percentage compared to other countries. Um, where does pricing thinking fit into design thinking and where should people start thinking about how should I price my product in the design phase? Yeah, it's a fantastic question, Tom. Um, here's what a typical organization or typical product manager may look at pricing. So, you know, product has largely been designed, thought out. Um, now they are a month away from launch and then they inevitably ask this, themselves a question, oh my gosh, how should I, what should I price this product at, right? We're about to launch this product in a month or two. Um, that's what I have seen um, over over my time working with a lot of product managers. Is that more often than not or is, um, is that the rule? It's, it's more often than not, right? It's really a last minute thing that people <laughs> think about. And, you know, if you think about all the things that a product manager does, can't blame them because there's so many things going on, so many things to do. Right. Um, the typical product manager might say, hey, my cost for this product is $100. I'll, I want to make 50 points of profit, so I'll price it at $200. So that's around the sophistication of most product managers and most companies. Now, let me share with you what I think best practice looks like okay. and where, where should it start. I would actually argue the time to start thinking about pricing is actually before um, locking before freezing your design, right? So that means if you have an opportunity to actually think about what your pricing is before design freeze, you have an opportunity to change things. Mm-hmm. And um, it's my pleasure to say I am one of the few pricing guy probably out there that have actually influenced a product design change because we've actually started a conversation so early enough, we actually impact the uh, the actual design of, are, a, of a product. Are you at liberty to give an idea of what that product was? and Or is that something? Yeah, it was a semiconductor product uh, okay. for a company uh, at Xilinx when I worked in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what I would suggest is start the conversation as early as possible. You know, it doesn't have to be um, you know, at, at conceptualization, but certainly before you start locking on design freeze. And during that and during that phase, what do you look at, right? And how do you, and 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 that is the critically the critical part of pricing is you start thinking about answering that first question we mentioned earlier: what's my product worth and to whom? Mm-hmm. And and the way you determine your product worth, the way I like to uh, suggest for your audience, is think about in three buckets: what's your product worth in terms of the economic bucket, in terms of cost savings that you uh, that you provide to your customers or revenue generation that you provide to your customers. So the ec- just a pure economics piece. And then the second thing to think about is what are all your clinical value that you create, right? So clinical value, I'm thinking along the lines of if you're, um, I'm going to refer to more from on the orthopedic side. So for instance, you know, you know for one of the tier one, you know, uh, economic or clinical value achievement would be if I am a tennis player and I went to surgery, can I go back to playing tennis again? So, so basically what I'm, what I'm providing is, is your technology able to uh, achieve a certain health status, um, you know, post-surgery. 
And then the second thing that I like to think about in terms of the, on the, on the clinical value is really around the process of recovery, you know, the typical length of stay, blood loss, and that kind of things, right? And then the third element in terms of clinical value I like to think about is the sustainability of health. So for example, does my product, um, you know, after surgery, do I have to, do I have to be readmitted, you know, a year later? Or, or after surgery, I am good to go for the next 10 years. So that's kind of the clinical value. So we, so we just talked about the economic value, cost and revenue, clinical value. And then a third bucket's really, uh, sometimes it's overlooked, but it's really important part of pricing is really around the, the, the emotional value that your product could actually bring. And for, for, for example, um, I like to bring up, say, uh, a Tylenol. Right. So if you are looking for drug medication, you could probably you could buy a lot of generics that, you know, the ingredients are much like Tylenol. But why do people continue buying Tylenol? It is the the brand value and the security and the safety uh, that the brand brings uh, that becomes part of the pricing uh, calculus. So for your audience. So here's uh, here's my suggestion. Start the pricing conversation as early as possible. Ideally, before uh, you lock down on your product design, and then think about what your product is worth and to whom. And once you identify who you who you're trying to target, and to to figure out what your product's worth, think in three buckets: clin- uh, clinical value, economic value, and then the emotional value. And that will be a great place for um, uh, for entrepreneurs to start. I'm going to jump ahead here um, because. I had another question, which you've touched on. Uh, let's skip the third bucket, the brand value, what that, what that, the emotional value that brings to it. There's a lot of data points in those first two buckets you've talked about. The question I have and was going to get to down the road is, how much data is enough? <laughs> is there a standard for modeling this? Because everyone's going to build an Excel spreadsheet, right? How many data points do we bring in? Um, when do you stop? Uh, because you can keep going. It's a, it's a rabbit hole, right? Oh, something else will change. Something else has another opinion uh, on something. Um, how do you model that? Yeah, great question. And uh, as you're speaking to that, Tom, it reminds me of a an economics um, value calculator that I created for our early intervention team um, mm-hmm. for a uh, for a company I, I've worked at. And what here's what we did. So the first question you, you need to answer is, how does, how does your customer view value, right? As simple as that sounds, what I find is a lot, of, um, uh, a lot of product managers sometimes may not actually can answer that question adequately. So, so how does your customer see value? So that's where you want to begin. And the example that I want to use in the early intervention business is, uh, is a physician office. Uh, we're selling, you know, injection devices for, um, uh, you know, for, for, for patients who might not need knee surgery for another five years. So, you know, what value does it bring to that physician? The, 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 one of the value to that physician might be, hey, uh, is this going to, is this process going to improve, is going to save the amount of time that I spend with the, with the patient and how many visits does it, do I have to spend with a patient? Not just, uh, not just uh, the time that I save in terms of that particular visit, but 
you know, maybe perhaps uh, in this case, I would have to see the patient six times a year. But if I use this particular product, I only need to need to see the patient one time a year. And what does that do for me? That opens up a lot of my uh, patient slot time. And just if that's so, so if that opens up my patient slot time, well, what could I do? I could be slotting other patients in uh, to do perhaps treating the same, uh, uh, perhaps treating the same type of uh, patients or treating some alternative treatment patients. So what I just described is the economic value calculator where we could, we could actually demonstrate how much savings that, uh, in terms of the, uh, the time savings that the customer uh, could realize. And from there, you could do math in terms of uh, the actual dollars and also the revenue, because now you could actually slot in additional patients or start doing alternative surgery. So what I would do there is you don't need a whole lot of um, data. The one thing I could almost say with, 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 some, with some assurance is no matter what you show, the physician or the doctor will have a different view, <laughs> right? So what I would do is start, some, start with something that's in the neighborhood yep. and, and how to get start something neighborhood. Perhaps there's a, um, a research report out there. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps there's some clinical study out there. And let's say there isn't any of that, Okay. Just based on the, the, the visits that you have made, the conversations you have had, uh, start with those numbers that appear to be reasonable. And what's going to be super critical for your economics value calculator is to allow the user to, to challenge your number. And when a user challenges your number and be open to it and say, no, I don't believe in that number. And then, you, and then be ready to ask the uh, your potential client say, well, what do you think the number is? And then let that person put the number that he or she believes it is and then let the calc and then let the calculate do its thing. And then, and then they can see in their very eyes using their own numbers, um, what the economic impact it's, it, uh, will be. There's something else you mentioned in there too, which goes back to, um, patient satisfaction. If something, you know, there's a, there's a value also to the patient in not having to show up three or four times a year as opposed to one time a year. And, That's right. And, and, and that really, does that come into the calculus too? Uh, it does come into the calculus. I think you could, I think for in that case, I would probably put that more on the, um, the clinical side clinical and side. the, uh, and arguably the emotional side. I think on the economic side, what we discussed a little bit earlier, more or less covers it. Okay. At Nemec, I've seen a lot of things, and Danielle can chime in on this. You know, there's people talking drugs, people talking services, devices, and, and digital therapeutics. All of these things have different pricing models. I mean, we've we've seen um, digital therapeutics, which are widely adopted in the UK, and they're not widely adopted here. And there's a whole issue around uh, uh, who's going to pay for them down the road and how much to charge. Um, how does one model different services and different different devices and and uh, is there a template I can look at for each of these to get a baseline to start with yeah another great question Tom and there is a template uh, that well I the way I like to think about is this so it doesn't matter whether it's digital um, where there's orthopedics or it's drug or or any other uh, product that you're maybe thinking of the most important thing to think about is really is really understanding 
what exactly, what job is your customer trying to get accomplished? Mm -hmm. So based on the target customer that you're going for, say, okay, well, what is that individual trying to get accomplished? Right. And then think through what are all the obstacles that person actually faces in accomplishing that job, right? So, so, and once you th once you have identified that, maybe maybe you know jot down what are the two, three really really big points that uh, that's super important for that target customer, and then identify how your product or services, whether it's digital or something else, actually solves that particular individual's problem or the obstacles that they're facing. And once you identify that, then you can go back to the framework that we just talked about, the economic, clinical, and, and psychological, right. uh, in terms of trying to quantify what this, uh, what your solution may be potentially worth to that to that uh, customer. Danielle, anything to question? Yeah, I, I have a question. This has been great, David. Um, again, at, at Nemec, we see a lot of startups who have technologies that they're bringing to the market and their biggest competitors are these big brands like J&J, &J, Medtronic. They have technologies on the market. Um, and I think the first thing a lot of startups and entrepreneurs think is we need to price it under them. That's how we're going to have them adopt it. And I think in our past conversations, we've I found out from you that sometimes pricing it under is not the best option. Do you have any like advice for startups of how to approach pricing when they're going up against these big brands or how to look at it? Yeah, that is a uh, another fantastic question and uh, not an easy one to answer in a, in a couple of minutes. But I'll I'll try to do my best. So, I mean, as an entrepreneur, when you're going up against a a gigantic company, um, how do you want to approach it, right? And this gets into part of the your the, the technology discussion. So, am I launching a product that is a a little bit of a better mousetrap? Right, so it was a little bit of a better mousetrap, but hey, this other the technology is out there, but this one's a little bit better, and I'm I'm and I'm this startup and I'm this new venture company versus the uh, versus this gigantic company. You could do that, and you say, hey, look, it's a this is a a better product, a better widget, and therefore I'm going to price it a little bit above it. Uh, that's one way. That's one way. That's one way approaching it. Right. You say, hey, look, it's a better product. It's a better mouse trap. Uh, I believe I'm going to, uh, and there are some unmet needs, uh, and therefore I can charge a little bit more. The the only potential challenge when you go up against these giant monsters is they have so much resources, and uh, it's going to be very difficult for you to get noticed. Uh, and they can always, you know, uh, you know, I, I say the odds are they'll likely win that battle. So, so if you're launching that product, it's trying to say, hey, I'm building a better mousetrap, I'll try to price a little bit more, right? Or sometimes you might say, hey, I'm going under, to undercut them, right? So if you go undercut them, you have to start thinking about, does your profit formula actually work, right? Uh, so a very, important, a very important element that entrepreneurs may not thoroughly think through is, do you have a profit formula that actually works? Right, so you might want to say, "Hey, I'm going to underprice. I'm going to underprice these uh, big gigantic guys." But by the way, these big gigantic these big gigantic guys have already achieved some economies of scale that you might not have achieved yet. Right? 
So if you haven't achieved that economies of scale and you're trying to come up against these big, gigantic guys, um, your profit for him may not work very well if you want to try to underprice them. So be so think carefully through if that's something you want to do. And then the third thing, and then another thing to think about, you know, when you as as a as an entrepreneur is, okay, do I launch my product as a sustaining technology, a better mousetrap, or do I try to disrupt the market? Right. And how do I potentially disrupt the market? Just the fact that you're underpricing doesn't mean you're going to disrupt the market. Right. There are actually a number of elements to actually try to uh, to try to think this through. And this is a really important part of it. So, for example, if if you believe the market is overserved, and I'll give you one example, uh, and one of my favorite examples that I talk about, Gillette. Gillette of old uh, is a was an eighty percent market share company, and. Gillette of New is now a roughly a 50% market share company. So what actually happened during that time? Uh, for, the, for those who use Gillette, you know, hey, I have a three-blade razor. And then Gillette says, uh, well, if three blades good, then four blades must be better than three. And then, and then, there beco- and then from there, it becomes a five-blade razor. And now there is a $200 heated razor that Gillette uh, has, has introduced. Can anyone out there who's listening to this podcast think of a uh, a cheaper way of warming up your face than using a heated razor? It's called a warm towel, right? So clearly, that's a Gillette is on a trajectory where the market has been overserved, and in comes a company called Dollar Shave Club, and what Dollar Shave Club did is actually recognized that uh, that industry is overserved. And came up with a a better a a better business model, a more cost effective business model, and that's how they're able to take so much so much share away from Gillette. So if you're an, so if you're an entrepreneur, you know if if the giant guy has a four bladed razor and you say, hey, I'm going to create a five bladed razor. In an underserved market, features and benefits win, but in an overserved market. What's going to win is really around uh, cost and convenience. So, in the case of Dollar Shave Club, they won because of cost and convenience, not because of um, you know and continued increase, increasing benefit in an overserved market. So, as an entrepreneur, that is something you really want to think about: is should I launch my product as a sustaining technology, or should I try to disrupt the market? And uh, let me let me in terms of, now let me bring you through an example here within um, uh, a company that I that I uh, that I work for. We acquired this neuromonitoring uh, piece of equipment, and we had a choice. We had a choice of launching as a as a sustaining technology, meaning allowing the um, uh, allowing the the neurotech and the neurologists. Uh, to use our equipment, and it's a it is a better mousetrap, and we could have priced it a little bit higher. What we did instead, what we thought was a more effective marketing strategy, was to launch it as a disruptive technology. And in this case, what we did was we say, hey, you know what, the surgeon could actually use this neuromonitoring equipment that you don't need a specialist like the neurotech or the neurologist, so the surgeon can use it, right? I can. I, I think this could be a much more effective marketing approach than if I was trying to build a better mousetrap. So, the, and the way we 
the way we attempt to disrupt the market is number one, if the surgeon uses it, you don't need specialists, specialized skills, neurologists, neurotech. Number two is more, much more convenient for use because now a surgeon is not waiting around for the, uh, for the neurologist schedule and the neurotech schedule, and then you got to you know, schedule a surgery around their, their availability. And number three is to be more affordable. So in that specific case, driving a lower price for more affordability, if you launch it as a disruptor, could actually work quite well against a giant. The reason why it works well against a giant is because if you're trying to disrupt a market, it causes the gigantic company to either freeze, they're unable to react to you, right? Or, or they choose to ignore you. So let's think about that example that I just went through where we were going after the, the surgeon as opposed to the, the, neuro, the, the tech and the neurologist. So our competitor who is serving the neurologist and the neurotech sees that our product is priced so low, would they want to then recalibrate their entire pricing to meet a target customer that's not even their target customer. Their target customer is the uh, the tech and the neurologist. So now the surgeon's using it. So it causes them to freeze and unable to react because there's so there's, there's so much money at stake. And the other thing is it's going after a non-consumption, meaning, uh, meaning a surgeon that's not even necessarily using their product. In fact, the surgeon may use that product in the very in the very early stages when the tech and the neurologist may not be available. So those, so that is how you, as a entrepreneur, can get a um, can get a foot in the door, start developing the and and, and having non and going after non consumption, and as and and think about this now as a surgeon start using this product. What's the surgeon going to think? Surgeon going to say, "Hey, do I really need the the neurotech and the neurologist anymore? Because I could be doing this myself." Right. So while you're while you're while when you're disrupting, while your competitor it causes your competitor to freeze or unable to react to you, and over time, once the surgeon starts figuring out, the momentum shifts in your favor and it's going to move so very rapidly that you would have disrupted the market and have uh, and have really penetrated the, uh, the uh, that, that 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 business. Mm. I have a question that goes back to our previous conversation when we started a preliminary on this. Um, people worry about leaving money on the table. And that's always a question. Am I charging enough? Can you give us a little historical example of where you've seen money left on the table? Oh, yeah, I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot of that, Tom. <laughs> and and that is a uh, and that's a really a state of the the, the, the lack of pricing. Uh, skill sets. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite example is I walk. Uh, there is a um, there's a technology. We were the only game in town, and it's called a Ria. It's, it's called a Ria. It's got a reamer, irrigator, and aspirator, and it's I think it's like 14, 15 year old products. We were charging a thousand dollar. Our ASP was around thousand dollars, and he we and I I got involved. Uh, not because I have some magical insights that hey, I think this product is going to be should be much higher. It's because we're launching a next generation product. So I got involved because our product manager said, "Hey, David, where should we price this next generation product?" I said, "Well, I say, hey, here's the great news. 
this next generation product using the framework that we talked about earlier, the clinical, economic, and psychological value, I believe we can charge $4,000 because that the value that we create for this product is a $10,000 value. So I can charge $4,000. I'm going to pass on $6,000 of savings to our, our customers and monetize a four. Right? What a, well, that's the good news. The bad news is there's not a lot of difference between this new product and your predicate product that you're charging $1,000. So there's a couple of things we could do. One, we could take the $1,000 predicate product and raise it closer to the where we think the new products should, should, be, should be priced at 4000 Or we're going to take that new product that we think we can charge at 4000 down closer to $1,000. And that's, and that's the dilemma. So here's what we did. We actually took the predicate product, raised it to uh, close to where the $4,000 mark is, eliminated any or all discounting. That product at the time was a $5 million a year product uh, that we're now on the run rate of uh, becoming a around a $30 million a year product. So that's a $25 million delta, right? And we also believed during the course of 14 years, right? where we could have charged, say, 4000 instead of 1000 During the course of that 14 plus years or so, we left on the neighborhood of around $180 million on the table, if not more than that. And that is the power of pricing. And there, there's an old saying that I like to say, if you, if you set the pricing wrong from the get-go, it becomes the gift that keeps on giving to your customers, <laughs> right? So what could you do with $180 million of, uh, of pure profit? Uh, I think a lot of companies could figure out a way to spend $180 million. I, I, I would imagine someone who saw that number was uh, quite concerned. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Nemec's focus is on obviously helping early stage entrepreneurs. There's good money and there's bad money in every investment decision. Uh, that when it, when an when a startup takes in capital. What's important for good money versus bad money and all this pricing structure in terms of getting the right mix on understanding how you price something and maybe asking investors what their expectations are um, as they come into it in a seed round or initial stage round, friends and family round. Um, how important is talking about pricing and how you're going to price something when in your go-to-market strategy at the very beginning so they'll set their expectations? Yeah, another fantastic question, Tom. And um, if this if this isn't carefully thought through, I think a great idea could um, just be starved off and never make it to market. That's how how important this topic is, and let me share with you kind of my views on this. So, oftentimes, and I'm coming, I'm kind of coming from a big company perspective where we're trying to launch innovative products, but I think this also directly applies to entrepreneurs as well. So, oftentimes, um, when we're launching uh, pr new products, we already know who our target customers are. Uh, we we have a proven forecasting model. Uh, we know who are the initial early adopters, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, so as, we're, as we bring in new products, we kind of have this expectation what this ramp is going to be, right? So, and that follows a very deliberate strategy, meaning we know who our customers are and we kind of have a good forecast of pretty well and we know what the adoption rate should be and so forth. 
I think the challenge for entrepreneurs is that, especially when you're trying to launch launch products, that um, there's nothing out there you can point to to success. So how do you model it out? And if there's an expectation that the that this that this product needs to ramp by such and such a day, uh, you could you could fundamentally kill that product project off right you know before it even has a chance to uh, to ramp up. What I think is really important in the case of a truly innovative product is not so much to set, um, you know, financial targets. Uh, although there is a place for them, so uh, don't get me wrong. There's there's a place for them. I think what's really more important is, as you're going through different stages, is to test out your assumptions. And the way I like to think about testing out your assumptions is this: it's actually a concept, what's called reverse income statement. So. Um, so for entrepreneurs, one of the things I like to encourage you to think through is what revenue or profits does your product need to attain in order to be attractive to investors? Right, so that's question number one. Now, in order to attain that number, what are all the assumptions that needs to happen? in order to deliver on that number. And then start thinking about how do you then start phasing those stages and start testing out those assumptions. So if in phase one, and you say, let's for instance say in phase one, you're testing uh, if uh, if your customer actually value this, if, if you know there are certain uh, value components you wanna test if it resonates with, you, with your, if your clients. If during phase one, if none of those things pans out the way you assume, then you know for sure you're not going to hit that financial target. But if it does hit it, now you say, hey, look, my confidence of hitting my financial target later on is going to be a lot higher. So now let's go to phase two. So what are you, well, what are you trying to test in phase two? Perhaps in phase two, you're trying to test your, um, uh, your, your profit formula. It gets into your costing and your pricing. So now, so now you're going to start testing those assumptions. And by the way, if those assumptions don't pan out, that means you, that mean you're not going to hit those the end run financial target. But if it does, now you feel even stronger that you can hit that financial target. So, so start thinking it through, uh, you know, thinking through all these different phases. To me, what's really important is identifying what those assumptions are and then stage your dollars and investments that you're testing those assumptions and those assumptions are tested. Uh, then you know at the, uh, when, at, at, when your product does eventually launch and does eventually ramp up, you, you are able to hit that financial target. But oftentimes, I think where bad money comes in is there's this expectation from, uh, from launch to this day, you will have to hit this financial. If you don't hit this financial, then the product considered failure. And because for a new product, the uptick might be slower. I would argue it's more important to actually test your assumptions than to try to figure out where to nail a certain financial target by a certain period of time. But that's just me. I don't get to write the checkbook, uh, but that's something for people to think about. Well, yeah, but I think it's 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 very important because I, I'm sure pricing is an issue. As Daniel and I have seen with a number of uh, our podcasts, they oftentimes don't understand what their capital needs are. A couple of people do generally, but they don't. And if they don't understand what their capital needs are, they certainly have gone down the road to think about their pricing either. Yeah. And Tom, if I can add to what you're just saying, uh, as you're speaking, um, 
Not sure why it popped up to my head, but it, it did. Pandora is a great example. Okay. Right. So Pandora, um, I know is not in med device <laughs> in, yeah. in, in the anemic world, but, uh, but I'm assuming most everybody knows Pandora. Pandora never made a single penny of profit during their entire lifetime before they got bought out by Sirius XM, the, uh, the satellite, um, the, the, the satellite uh, radio company. Right. And what they were pursuing was really, and they couldn't figure out what their profit formula was. Right. Uh, so they, so never, they were, they were never able to generate a, um, a penny of profit. So Pandora's example where, you know, it's a company when that was launched, it was in pursuit of share. How do I get as many people to use my products possible? And then once I get as many people to, to use my products possible, then I'll sell it and, and then uh, I can retire and so on and so forth, right? So they got a lot of users and, and adopters, but they couldn't make any money whatsoever. So then what do you, so what do, you do there? So either at, at some point, Pandora was supported by VC funds, but the VC could have just as easily pulled out and say, hey, we're done. And then Pandora would have to shut its doors. Uh, what, what saved them eventually was Sirius XM bought them. Now, Sirius XM has to figure out how to make money with Pandora because Pandora's ne- never figured it out. So as an entrepreneur, I can't overemphasize the fact that it's really a it's really important point is when, sh- when should you become impatient for profit versus when do you become impatient for revenue or share? If you haven't figured out what your profit formula looks like, it's going to be critical for you to be impatient for profit. You know, how are you going to make money? Because once you figure that out, then you need to scale very rapidly in order to, to generate a profit. But if you have figured out what your profit formula looks like, then you need to be impatient for revenue or share and then, and then to ramp up as quickly as possible. And that's where I think uh, some entrepreneurs get tripped up because they're all in pursuit of share. Forget about the profit formula. They'll say, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll make money here you know, later on. We'll figure out how to make money later on. Uh, like the case of Pandora, but they never figure out how to make money because uh, at that point, your price has already been anchored. It's going to be difficult to to uh, reel that back in uh, once you establish that, uh, once, you, once you've anchored your product for, for a very, very long time, right? Maybe, and I know a lot of startups are probably in this mode, thinking about an exit strategy, right? You know, they're thinking, yeah, I get share, I'll exit. And someone with a currency, a stock price like Pandora, will come along, or like SiriusXM, will come along and buy me. You know, they have the currency; it's a stock transaction, an asset sale. Um, that is oftentimes what people think about. You know, I'm going to get bought by a bigger company. I'll just get enough market share. Um, I don't know if that was the case, but is that oftentimes what happens in the med tech space? Is there? Is have you seen that? Yeah, in fact, uh, for a company that I worked at. We actually bought this startup company. It's a digital surgery product. Uh, we bought this startup company for, let's just say, millions and millions of dollars, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I was actually involved in the commercialization of this strategy for this uh, for this giant um, med device company. And we struggled with trying to figure out how to actually now make money, right? So from so for that owner perspective, that owner's made his money and that owner's gone. But as the acquirer of that technology now, now we have to think about well, how are we gonna 
how are we gonna make this money? And it's and it's not easy. And, but uh, but we but we are able to figure out a way to start monetizing it. The good news is it hasn't been a trench for too long, <laughs> right? Um, it, it's, it's one thing where you have some market share and you've only been out there for you know five years and perhaps you have five percent market penetration. So I still have ninety five percent that I can still pursue and and fix the price. But if you're already well penetrated, that's a whole different game, right? So, so that's something to think about as well, whether you're the acquirer or the seller. Or, uh, and and, and let, let me give you a great example. What happens if you're, uh, like the Pandora example, let me use a drug example. Uh, there's a company called Turing Pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. who bought this company, uh, who bought this drug called Daraprim, Right. And Daraprim treats toxic plasmosis, uh, which is a um, which is a parasite if you contaminate a water, if you eat um, you know uncooked beef and that kind of stuff, right? That product has been out in the market for thir- at thirteen dollars and fifty cents per pill. Right, so think about this: thirteen dollars and fifty cents per pill. Um, if you look at other companies like um, other companies that drugs that treat rare disease instead of $13.50 per pill rare disease pills sometimes are close to like a thousand dollars a pill for treatment right now that drug has been out there for 60 plus years at 1350 so the acquiring company Turing Pharmaceutical says hey I think this thing's been underpriced for 60 years so now I'm going to take that price from $13.50 a pill to $750 per pill, right? And um, there was an outroar. And let me mention the name of this uh, CEO who did this. Farmer Bro. Farmer Bro, Martin <laughs> Shakrelli, right? So even though it was completely legal, the backlash that he got, right. he uh, the uh, people just can't can't get past the five thousand four hundred percent price increase that he did for that product, right? So that's something that you gotta be cognizant of as an entrepreneur. Hey, if I'm gonna set a price super low, grab share, sell it, and I'm I'm make my millions, I'm out of here. And then if you're the acquiring company like J and J, hey, look, uh, maybe this guy's only got five percent share. The ninety five percent of the market hasn't been exposed. I think I can do something with it. I can rectify the price. That's one scenario. The other scenario is if you've already penetrated, the, everyone's very well familiar and your price is well set, and now you're trying to go from 1350, which is underpriced, to 5,400%. That's a whole nother discussion, right? So that's something to that's something to consider in your uh, uh, in your calculus. Uh, yeah, that emotional end on the consumer end. <laughs> uh, by the way, as a quick aside. Um, he was asked to be released, uh, an early release to uh, pursue a, um, a, a, a vaccine for COVID. And the, um, the judges turned around and said that uh, he had no clinical background. He had no um, uh, scientific background and um, stay in jail. <laughs> wow. Wow. So anyway, quick aside about a pretty interesting individual, not a positive interesting individual, but a negative <laughs> interesting individual. Um, Danielle, anything else to add? No, I think that that's it. David, any three yeah. tips for entrepreneurs? Just three quick sides? 
Yeah, I would say, uh, by the way, if you're hearing some lawnmower thing going on, uh, I think my lawnmower guy came, so he's cutting my lawn. We're uh, in the so Zoom age. That's okay. <laughs> but uh, if you can, if you could uh, uh, hear past my lawnmower. We can. Um, here's, here's what I suggest for the, um, for the entrepreneurs, right? So first of all, recognize that when you ask, how much should I price my product or service? All of marketing dovetails to that one point. And if you're struggling to answer how much should I price my product and services, that means there are lots of uh, there are a number of elements uh, within your marketing mix that needs to be thir- that needs to be thoroughly thought out. Right, that, that's number one. Number two is to recognize the power and the role of pricing, and the role of pricing is really to capture value of the product that you create. Right. So uh, if you're leaving a lot of money on a table, you're, you're leaving a lot of uh, untapped uh, uh, value capture. Right. And I would say the third thing is to say, well, where do, where do I start? Ask yourself these two simple questions. How much is my product worth and to whom? And then what do you want to do? And I'll leave with one final point. Uh, there are plenty of resources available, but you got to take that first step. <laughs> Either get a book, go to Google, watch some YouTube, or reach out to Danielle, and um, uh, and then we can help you here from the anemic side as well. Outstanding. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to MedTech Monday. If you want to get in contact with David, our guest today, um, you can find him on LinkedIn um, and just type in David Mock, M-O-K is his last name, or you can always contact us and we can put you in contact since he is on our smart team. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next week.